everybody. Welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Campbell. I'm a lifelong political nerd with an academic background in international relations focused on security policy and real-world experience working in the U.S. domestic political space and living in a number of other countries than my own, all of which combined, I think, positions me fairly well both to interpret for my international audience what's going on in the politics of my own country and to shed light for some of the folks back home on some events of note going on in the rest of the world. I talk about a lot of things on this podcast, but more often than not, probably a, a plurality of the time, it boils down to questions of democracy and, we might say, how democracy is faring in various parts of the world. Now, this has been an interesting week when it comes to those questions out of the U.S. To cut to the chase, there are some hopeful signs out of America's former most important swing state of Ohio. But before I get into that, as always, if you haven't done so already, please do remember to subscribe or follow the podcast on whatever platform you listen. and. Be sure to share the podcast with anybody you think might get something out of it. All you gotta do is hit that button with the three horizontal dots, select copy link, and send it to, you know, everyone with a pulse. Thanks as always. So when the far-right supermajority on the Supreme Court last year took a blowtorch to the national right of Americans to choose whether or not they might want to have an abortion, a bunch of things changed. Solidly blue states took measures to further protect the right to choose. Solidly red states got into a dick measuring contest to see which one could pass the most hardcore restrictive bans on abortion. And in states that are uh, less politically unipolar, a variety of other things have happened. One of the things that we've seen happen in a number of states has been direct democracy efforts to safeguard abortion rights. In Kansas, for example, Republicans' efforts to curb abortion rights had been stymied by the fact that Kansas's state constitution had been interpreted as protecting the right to have an abortion. So they put up a ballot measure in the hopes that voters would declare that no, the Kansas constitution should not, in fact, protect the right to choose. They put that up for a vote during a primary election in the middle of the summer in advance of the 2022 midterms. Now, I remember most of the conversation at the time assuming that the Republicans would get their way here because A, Kansas is a pretty red state, and B, they managed to stick this onto the ballot during a primary in the middle of the summer when it was assumed that nobody would actually show up. Instead, the Republicans' ballot measure failed by like almost 20 points. This... This was seen as a, a political earthquake, a kind of harbinger of things in the 2022 midterms, maybe not going quite as swimmingly as the Republicans at the time had assumed. But I'll get into the politics of all of this in a minute. In Michigan, a couple of months later, Democrats got a referendum put on the ballot in the midterm elections, you know, actually hoping for large turnout in order to get an actual legitimate weigh-in from voters rather than just trying to sneak it through without anybody noticing a ballot measure to enshrine the right to an abortion in Michigan's state constitution. And that ballot measure passed pretty easily. So now we get to the reason why I'm bringing this up this week. This year, voters in Ohio, Michigan's backward and highly inferior neighbor to the South whose football team sucks, go blue. For my non-American listeners, Michigan and Ohio are massive sports rivals and I spent my adolescence in Michigan, so. Voters in Ohio uh, have got a referendum on the ballot to basically do what Michigan voters did last year, that is to say, to enshrine the right to have an abortion in Ohio's state constitution. I should say, I think I would argue that this is actually rather more urgent in Ohio than it was in Michigan, since Ohio has basically had complete Republican control for some time now, and thus was one of the states which, when Roe fell, started implementing super draconian restrictions on the right to have an abortion which, of course, led to some high-profile, pretty terrible situations, like a 10-year-old rape victim having to flee Ohio and seek refuge in the progressive Eden that is Indiana in order to be able to have an abortion rather than being forced to carry the rapist baby to term, as would have been the case in Ohio. 
So Ohio voters got a referendum onto the ballot for this fall. But the Ohio Republican Party hasn't been working for years to entrench their power through gerrymandering and voter suppression, only to let some minor obstacle like a majority of the voters stall their agenda. So they hatched a plan to make sure that the voters of Ohio would not be in a position to do this fall what the voters of Michigan did last fall. That plan involved passing another referendum to change the rules in advance of the one on the ballot this fall on the abortion question. This referendum, which was set to come before, would make it so that rather than needing a simple majority of Ohio voters to make changes to the Constitution, it would now require 60% of the vote to do so. Best of all, they held the vote for this referendum in the middle of the summer vacation when there was nothing else being voted on so that they could ensure absolute minimum turnout, which they assumed would work in their favor. But it didn't quite go as planned, because earlier this week a huge number of Ohio voters turned out to collectively say, fuck that. I'm pretty sure I heard that the turnout for this referendum being held, mind you, during the summer of an off-off year actually exceeded the turnout in the primaries last year when there was a pretty high-profile Senate primary. The funny thing is that the no vote actually almost reached the 60% threshold that Republicans are trying to set for the next one. So, with this attempt by Republicans to basically rat-fuck the amendment process to keep Ohioans from being able to vote to protect abortion rights having so spectacularly blown up in their faces, it's really kind of hard to imagine the majority of Ohioans won't vote this fall to go ahead and, yes, enshrine abortion rights into that state's constitution. This sort of thing happening every so often makes me hopeful that rumors of democracy's demise may have been exaggerated a bit. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is clearly a global populist anti-democracy trend. We're seeing it from Hungary to Turkey to Israel to the Philippines to a whole bunch of other countries. And it is pretty hard to deny that one of America's two major political parties pretty clearly sees democracy as an obstacle to be overcome rather than a system to which they belong. But moments like this, moments where, where the Republicans roll out shitty, underhanded, cheap tricks to try to get around the will of the voters, and then those voters stand up and say, hey, now wait just one goddamn minute here. Those sorts of moments give me hope. While we're on the subject of abortion, I do want to talk a bit about the politics of it all. So... I just want to state off the bat here that the destruction of the national right to abortion by the right-wing theocrats on the Supreme Court last year was a tragedy for a million different reasons. It was a tragedy because it represents an unprecedented rollback of individual liberty, something Republicans often claim they care about. It was a tragedy for the very concept of women's rights and gender equality. I mean, it basically declared that at a national level, one sex doesn't fully get to decide what to do with their own bodies, which is, you know, yeah. It was a tragedy for individual women and the men who care about them. And in just a year since that happened, the horror stories have already started piling up. I mean, women and girls who have had to travel huge distances to get access to the healthcare they need. Women whose lives have been put at serious risk because they had the misfortune to live in a red state where doctors are afraid to provide needed care. Like, there have been stories about women whose own health has clearly necessitated terminating a pregnancy, but the doctors have basically been forced to wait until the fetus miscarried on its own at great risk to the mother's health and future fertility. And in a country that already has the worst maternal mortality rate in the developed world, particularly among black women, Restricting abortion rights is not going to help with that. The Center for American Progress reports a study from University of Colorado that estimates that if abortion were fully banned nationally, that maternal mortality rate would increase on top of where it already is by 24%. I say all this just to make the point that 
the end of nationally guaranteed abortion rights in America is a very, very bad thing. And it is a moral issue. That being said, I do want to talk about the politics of it all. And from a political standpoint, well, there are some implications to the end of Roe versus Wade, to the end of a national right to abortion that are, let's say, schadenfreude-inducing to a longtime observer and, you know, enemy of the modern Republican Party. They are the dog that caught the car here. I mean, there's a long history of how restricting the right to have an abortion became central to the alliance between Republicans and the hardcore evangelical Christian movement. Both those groups would have you believe that the modern evangelical movement was born out of opposition to abortion on demand after Roe vs. Wade created a national right to choose. In actuality, that founding myth of the modern evangelical movement is, in fact, very much a myth. The evangelical Protestant movement initially didn't give a shit about abortion. For them, at the time, staunch opposition to abortion was a Catholic thing. What really brought them into being as a political force, at least initially, was trying to defend racial segregation. They only pivoted their movement to focus on the whole abortion thing later once it was clear that the ship had kind of sailed on segregation as the vast majority of Americans had pretty much decided that open racial discrimination was bad. There's a whole story there, I'll link to a good piece about it in the episode description in case anybody's curious. But in any case, whatever the origins of the alliance between the Republican Party and hardcore religious opponents of abortion rights, this has been a thing for a while. They've used it to mobilize voters, they've used it really to, to build a movement to stack the judiciary with right-wing hardliners. S some version of the argument, come vote for Republicans! They'll appoint right-wing justices to overturn Roe and stop fallen women and abortionists from killing babies has been a central part of right-wing voter mobilization in America for decades. And there's a reason that when Sarah Palin was asked in 2008 when running for the vice presidency to identify a single Supreme Court case, this was the one case that even she, the single most ignorant and stupid national candidate in American history not named Donald Trump, had heard of. I've seen this narrative at work, up close and personal, with some members of my own family whose Christian values of charity, treating poor people and immigrants with decency, turning the other cheek, a whole bunch of the other hippie things that Jesus preached, probably would have caused them to leave the modern iteration of the Republican Party a while ago. But ultimately they stuck around, because the evangelical church had so effectively placed the abortion thing above a whole bunch of other tenets of Christianity that the Republicans, <laughs> well, maybe aren't quite so good on. The thing is, as has sometimes been the case, the actual leaders of the Republican Party, the ones who, who hatched this mobilization strategy a while back, I think they weren't actually that interested in getting rid of Roe, as indicated by the fact that they really seemed to have gone this whole time without any plan in place for what they'd actually do if this policy goal was achieved. The anti-abortion right, as I said, are the dog that caught the car. Now, this is a thing that has bitten Republican elites in the ass more than once in recent history. I mean, the political strategy of right-wing elites in America for a long time has been to get average people to vote against their personal interests by dangling shiny objects in front of them in a way that is simplistic, misleading, or straight-up false. They will pump an untrue narrative into the body politic, in recent times with a lot of help from Fox News. This narrative then maybe helps them in the short term, but at the cost of massive, unforeseen, long-term consequences that often involve them being sidelined and their party being rendered, I think anyway, kind of unrecognizable to them. I mean, you can see this in a number of individual issues. I'll give one example besides abortion in a minute. But also, like, just the character, the personality of the party, which, 
in just a few decades has drifted from a coalition of establishment corporate patricians and religious pearl clutchers pushing personal responsibility to become basically a foaming-at-the-mouth, steaming-mad, anti-establishment personality cult pushing cultural grievance and anti-law enforcement raging in defense of an obvious criminal. I rather doubt this is what people like Karl Rove, George Bush, Charles and David Koch, Rupert Murdoch, hell, Reagan, were he still alive, I rather doubt that today's Republican Party is the organization that those people thought they were building when they seeded some of the narratives that have grown into the modern American right. But beside the party's, like, persona, let's look at one issue, besides the abortion one, that's a good example of this. So, Republicans who wanted to cut spending on social programs because they don't like the idea of society paying collectively to help poor people, always rage about the evils of deficit spending and the debt whenever Democrats, who might, again, spend money on social programs to help poor people, are in power. Strangely, those concerns about deficits evaporate when they're in power and... They can spend stuff on what they want to. Uh, but, you know, decades of raging about the debt seeped into the body politic, and eventually, in 2010, a bunch of low-information voters who had drunk the Kool-Aid on this and other issues rode the Tea Party wave into Congress, which created a bit of a problem for poor Republican Speaker of the House John Boehner. John Boehner certainly wasn't, like, an architect of the strategy I'm talking about or solely responsible for creating a generation of increasingly radicalized, brainwashed know-nothings who then wandered into government, but he certainly contributed to and benefited from that strategy. But then the poor guy got stuck with the hard job of basically telling these people that a lot of it was not really true, and now they were in government, they had to govern responsibly, which included doing things like raising the debt ceiling sometimes. And as we know, that has continued to be a problem. So for more context on this issue, check out episode 40 of this show. The point I'm trying to make here is this. Conservatives, for a while, have pursued a strategy of propagandizing voters which redounded to their benefit in the short term while in the long term creating a big problem for them to deal with when some of the people they effectively propagandized ended up in the government themselves. I mean, Donald Trump. Trump himself is basically a low-information Fox News viewer who accidentally wandered into the Oval Office and, you know, wasn't very good at actually governing responsibly, one might say. So why am I talking about this in the context of the abortion thing? Well, as with a number of other issues, Republican elites have dangled this shiny object out there to motivate Christian conservatives to come out and vote in the way that I described before, but they really didn't seem to have a plan in place, either for the policy or the politics, for what to do if they actually ended up getting their way, or what they told their supporters was their way. And now, here we are, and it's kind of a problem for them, which, although, again, a tragedy for all of the policy reasons that I laid out before, it's actually kind of funny politically if you like watching Republicans squirm, which, you know, I do. So the thing about that coalition Republicans had was that it kind of depended, I think, on some parts of the hardcore right-wing social agenda, certainly the anti-abortion part, being more aspirational than real or immediate. Something for social conservatives to hope for in the future while economic conservatives got what they wanted in the present. A lot of... Um, Say more kind of normal, mainstream voters were willing to vote alongside hardcore cultural conservatives because, you know, they wanted lower taxes. These were the ever-present, I'm economically conservative but socially liberal people. 
With Roe in place, those people could vote for Republicans because they were promised lower taxes or less government or something, but didn't really have to worry about the imminent prospect of returning to a world in which women routinely died from coat hanger abortions or in which certain forms of birth control were getting banned or something. The problem for the Republicans is that a lot of those people are now probably going to find it a lot harder to pull the lever for the red team because with Roe overturned, well, they're kind of playing with live ammo. And it turns out that a lot of voters aren't actually very interested in the modern Republican Party's hardcore reactionary social agenda. I mean, look no further than the midterms last year for evidence of this. Those midterms should have been a massacre for Democrats. The party that won the last presidential election always gets killed in the midterms, even if they've literally made it rain 20s from the sky. Combine that historical disadvantage faced by the incumbent party with high inflation and low approval numbers for the Democratic president, and yet, Democrats, I think, ended up winning basically every high-profile gubernatorial race, actually expanded their majority in the Senate, and only ended up losing, like, nine seats in the House, which is, you know, a little shy of the 50 or so that Banana Republican now Speaker of the House Kevin Mike Kevin McCarthy was predicting. Now, a number of factors surely went into that not-awesome performance by Republicans in the midterms, but the fact that voters were aware that the Republicans were now no longer shooting blanks with their hardcore anti-choice agenda surely played a role. So then what are they to do about this? Well, one option would be to learn a lesson from the midterms. Correct course right now. Take a more moderate position on abortion that's closer to where the voters are, or at least along the lines of where a number of more sane Republican elected officials were a decade or two ago. But as I said, the fact that a number of hardcore right-wing Kool-Aid drinkers are now in government makes that kind of difficult, because in a number of states, they have just plowed ahead and enacted draconian restrictions on abortion, which are pretty unpopular, and nationally, as I discussed a few weeks back, they're going all in, lining up to play politics at the military in order to prove just how anti-choice they are. For context, see episode 43. This problem is laid out pretty well by none other than Ann Coulter, who, despite being kind of loathsome and wrong about almost everything, is actually a pretty interesting and often prescient observer of conservative politics, if you can get past the whole vicious xenophobia thing. She was, for example, way earlier than most right-wing commentators in predicting Donald Trump, and also publicly turned on him for failing their side on policy a lot earlier than most former supporters turned opponents. When it comes to this issue, she wrote a piece a while back basically chiding her fellow anti-abortion right-wingers for getting drunk with power after the fall of Roe, and predicted a backlash, which we've now seen in places like Kansas, Michigan, and Ohio, as I described earlier, and of course, the midterms. The other day after the referendum in Ohio, she tweeted, and I quote, Pro-lifers who refuse to acknowledge reality are going to get millions more babies killed when Democrats win supermajorities across the land. What kind of abortion laws do you think you're going to get then? Unquote. Now, if we can move past the overheated, scientifically incorrect, hysterical language about infanticide, I think she's basically right. I mean, if Republicans decide, even now that we're playing with live ammo on this issue and the voters know it, that they want to keep having rigid opposition to women having the right to do what they want to with their own bodies be central to their platform, well, they're going to have electoral problems like they haven't for a while. Furthermore, although I believe we should try to get national laws in place to protect abortion rights nationwide, I think it's pretty doubtful that there are actually going to be enough votes in the Senate to overcome the inevitable filibuster. I mean, even with the two pro-choice Republican senators we know about and maybe one or two more who could be brought over on this, getting to 60 is going to be a pretty heavy lift. And unless the Democrats manage to expand their majority to the point where 
let's just call them aggressively moderate Democratic senators, Joe Manchin and former Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema are irrelevant and we can do away with the filibuster. Well, let's just say I think we'll try and I think we should be seen to be trying, but I don't think it's going to happen for a while, which means this will remain a live issue, which could be a real opportunity for Democrats to make inroads at the state level in places that have been pretty inhospitable to the blue team for a while, if the referendums in Kansas and Ohio are any indication. That actually leads me to say, and for the record, only right now while I'm just wearing my amoral horse race political strategist hat and not focusing on the profound moral importance of protecting the right to choose, a part of me almost wishes that voters in some of these states weren't basically letting Republican elected officials off the hook by going over their heads and enshrining abortion rights in their constitutions through these referendums. Because with the abortion question now effectively off the table in places like Kansas and Michigan, Republicans in those states will probably be able to go back to having it both ways like they did before, demagoguing the issue of abortion without having to face the political consequences of doing that while playing with live ammo. Now, in reality, of course, I am very glad that these states have done this. Some things are more important than a short-term political advantage, and this is certainly one of them. I will say, I, I do kind of wish that Ohio had done this last or maybe next year instead of this year, either of which would probably have helped rather a lot with pretty important Senate races. But, oh well, in all seriousness, I really do hope that it passes this fall. Women in Ohio have just as much right as do women in Michigan to control their own bodies, even if I think Ohio's football team can go straight to hell. Go blue! In any case, the success of Ohio voters earlier this week in defeating the Republican-sponsored referendum to undercut the vote this fall on protecting abortion rights is good news for both democracy and for abortion rights in Ohio. It's actually also good news for abortion rights nationally because... I mean, if voters in places like Kansas and Ohio will show up during summer vacation to overwhelmingly oppose efforts by Republicans to restrict abortion rights now that the right-wing Supreme Court has green-lighted their efforts to do so, well, that would seem to be a pretty solid indicator that the country more broadly is not in line with the hard right on this issue. So this is obviously very good news for the right to choose, because well, it turns out that when hardcore anti-abortion politics are actually a viable option... Well, most Americans don't seem to be too into it. It's also very good news for democracy, because it appears that Republicans are no longer interested in the advice of Ann Coulter, and are instead going to go ahead and lash themselves to radical anti-abortion politics despite the national mood, and as a result, probably lose a decent number of elections. And unless and until today's Republican Party goes back to seeing democracy as a system that they're part of rather than an obstacle to be overcome, and return to being a loyal opposition party rather than a borderline fascist movement bent on removing all barriers to their own power in order to turn America into a more heavily armed version of Orban's Hungary, unless and until that happens, them losing as many elections as possible is critical to the survival of the Republic. That's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you like the show and want to make sure not to miss the next episode, hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. Also, as always, please leave a review and, most importantly, share the podcast with anyone you think might get something out of it. To those who've already done so, thanks. To those who will, thanks in advance. And thanks, as always, to my friend Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork and to the rest of y'all for listening. Music